We're here talking today to Dr. Jennifer Green. We're going to talk about the overlap of diabetes and heart failure, one of the hot topics at the American Diabetes Association this year in June. But first, Jennifer, tell us a little bit more about yourself, including your research interests at Duke. Yeah, sure. Thank you for having me. Uh, I'm an associate professor of medicine in the endocrinology division at Duke, and I'm also a member of the Duke Clinical Research Institute. My particular area of interest is in trials designed to assess the effects of various interventions in altering the cardiovascular risk of patients with type 2 diabetes. And as you have mentioned at the ADA this year, the relationship between diabetes, in particular type 2 diabetes and heart failure, was really an area of major interest. And so this is interesting to me because I know we all hear heart disease, and I think I thought coronary artery disease as the main risk to patients with diabetes. And of course, coronary artery disease can lead to heart failure. And in patients with diabetes, you have a two to four increase risk of heart disease. But I don't think we've really had such a focus on purely heart failure. Tell us about that. That clinical correlation of heart failure and diabetes. Right, it's really interesting and some people have referred to heart failure as being the forgotten complication of diabetes and sometimes heart failure is associated with coronary artery disease but not always and one of the things that I learned at the meeting is that there can be a variety of physiologic effects of diabetes that can lead to heart failure. So for example in addition to coronary disease and ischemic changes in the heart. Patients with diabetes also can have endothelial dysfunction and also what's been described as myocardial fibrosis that can alter cardiac function, so it's really multifactorial. Most of the patients with type 2 diabetes who have heart failure are thought to have diastolic dysfunction or heart failure with preserved ejection fraction, although it certainly can run the spectrum and patients with, with type 2 diabetes can have, uh, can have significant systolic dysfunction as well. So it's important that we understand what kind of heart failure we're dealing with in the management of patients with both conditions. And we were saying earlier that it's a two-way street. So diabetes can cause or contribute to heart failure, but heart failure can also increase insulin resistance. Right, and it is a little bit hard. It's sort of a chicken and the egg situation. Sometimes it's hard to know which came first. In patients who are known to have heart failure, it's estimated that somewhere between 28 and 45% of patients also have diabetes, but again, it's bi-directional. Um, it's thought that, of, as we've mentioned, diabetes may lead to the development of heart failure, but sometimes heart failure itself or impaired cardiac function is felt to contribute to insulin resistance and hyperglycemia as a result of that. So it's a very complex interrelationship. And one thing I would say is if you have a patient with diabetes who has worsening heart failure, that can worsen insulin resistance and make the diabetes and glycemic control worse as well. Absolutely, and I think another of the things that I learned at the meeting in June was just to be aware of the overlap in symptomatology between how we think people with diabetes can feel and what might in fact be a manifestation of heart failure such as fatigue, dyspnea, not having a lot of energy. Sometimes it's hard to know if that's diabetes related, so it might be due to higher blood sugars, if it's due to the medicines that we give them to treat their diabetes, or it might be a manifestation of something completely different, such as heart failure and volume overload. 
So what's the preferred antihyperglycemic treatment for patients with heart failure and diabetes? Well, it might come as a surprise to some of our listeners, but the cardiology societies very clearly emphasize the use of metformin in patients with diabetes and heart failure. And in 2006, the FDA actually removed the restriction on metformin that it, until that time had prohibited the use of metformin in patients with heart failure or unstable heart failure. The cardiologists have also reviewed quite a lot of retrospective observational data that suggested that patients with heart failure who had received metformin had better outcomes than patients who didn't receive metformin as part of their glucose lowering therapies. And they feel fairly confident that metformin should play a major role in diabetes treatment in patients with heart failure. Now there are some exceptions to that and of course if patients also have very, very significant renal dysfunction, they have a separate contraindication to use. And personally, if I have a patient on metformin who is admitted to the hospital who is acutely ill, I would always hold the metformin in that circumstance. But as a general rule, it is considered appropriate to give outpatients with heart failure metformin as part of their glucose lowering therapy. And that's a good point. We may discontinue the metformin when they come into the hospital, and the hospital team may forget to restart it on discharge. And if their GFR is above 30, there's no reason not to restart it when they go back home. That's right. Now, I will admit that in some of my patients with diabetes and heart failure, sometimes I have double-checked with their cardiologist to make sure that that physician also felt comfortable with the patient taking metformin, but I think as a general rule, that's no longer considered a contraindication. And what about other drugs that can improve heart failure admissions or death from heart failure? Well, that's a very interesting area, and as many of the listeners probably know, there was an FDA requirement issued in 2008 that now mandates that we really very rigorously assess the cardiovascular safety of newer medications developed to treat diabetes. Now these trials, many of which have now been completed, were not designed specifically to look at patients with heart failure or heart failure outcomes, but what we're finding is that in particular, the SGLT2 inhibitor class of drugs appears to reduce the risk of hospitalization for heart failure in high cardiovascular risk patients who are given the drug as a component of their care. So it's an area of very significant interest. But it is difficult to extrapolate that to all patients with diabetes. So for example, these trials didn't enroll healthier patients. The drugs weren't really used in a preventative sense. And sometimes in these trials, only very small percentages of patients with a prior history of heart failure were enrolled. So it's clear that we need to study this area further and learn quite a lot more. So I wouldn't say that as a general rule, this is a class of drug indicated for patients with diabetes and heart failure, but there's very intriguing information available suggesting a benefit. All right. What about diagnosing patients with diabetes who have these vague symptoms of fatigue, low energy? What's the best way to diagnose them? Well, that's a good question. And full disclosure, I'm not a cardiologist. Mm -hmm. I think in general, the stress type testing would only be indicated if you thought the patient had ischemic symptoms or an ischemic equivalent. So 
I think what I'd start with is a really nice thorough review of systems, an examination to see if the patient had evidence of volume overload, take a look at their weight over time and see if there's any evidence of a rapid weight gain that might suggest volume retention rather than just plain old weight gain that we're used to seeing over time. You know, if they have edema or rowels on physical examination or their chest x-ray suggests volume overload. I think what I'd probably do is the next step is just get a regular echocardiogram to assess the ejection fraction and or see if there's other evidence of diastolic dysfunction, which might suggest a heart failure condition. Okay, great. Any other information you can give us about diabetes and heart failure? Just, I think, finally, a reminder that there are some classes of drugs that we need to either not use or use with caution in patients with diabetes and heart failure. So, example, I think most of the listeners are aware that the thiazolidinedione medications, such as pioglitazone, are associated with volume expansion and an increased risk of hospitalization for heart failure. So, I would probably avoid use of those medications um, in any patient with any degree of heart failure if there are other options available. There may be some association between insulin therapy and particularly very high-dose insulin therapy and some degree of volume expansion or volume retention. So in a patient who has other options, who requires insulin, it might be reasonable to think about interventions that work in a complementary fashion to the insulin so that the overall insulin dose can be minimized to a certain extent. So adding another oral drug like an SGLT2 or metformin or even a GLP-1 so that the insulin requirements could go down. Absolutely. Those are all reasonable considerations. And then, of course, in patients with heart failure, it's probably always reasonable for them to see a cardiologist at least once for an evaluation and input. Um, And they may be sent back to you with recommendations for further care. Um, But I think it's always very important to have a, a cardiologist's opinion regarding optimal care. Great. Well, thank you so much for joining us today. After I spoke to Jennifer Green, I decided to ask a cardiologist for the best imaging to evaluate for heart failure. Dr. Annalisa Crowley is an associate professor of medicine and the director of the Durham VA Echocardiograph Laboratory. My other connection to Annalisa is that her son, Pete, plays on the same chess team as my two sons. Annalisa confirmed that she'd start with a good physical exam, just like the one Dr. Green outlined, as the first step to diagnose heart failure. I'm sitting here with Dr. Annalisa Crowley to ask a question that came up when I was speaking to Dr. Jennifer Green about heart failure and diabetes. Annalisa, tell us the best way to diagnose heart failure. Susan, thanks for asking this question. It's very important to understand the key concept for patients with diabetes. In a patient, it's important for heart failure to understand whether or not they're symptomatic or asymptomatic and understanding if they're trying to start an exercise program as the test you order next may change. Another really useful test is N-terminal pro-BNP, and these brain natriuretic peptide levels are oftentimes elevated, and depending on the test assay that you use, the levels vary, but they're elevated in patients with heart failure. So this can be a very helpful test in conjunction with your physical exam to help you assess if a patient has heart failure or other causes, potentially pulmonary causes of dyspnea, for example. 
Once you get those levels back, if the BNP is high or your physical exam is suggestive that the patient's in heart failure, the next appropriate test is an echocardiogram. And an echocardiogram at rest really helps you decide if the patient has structural abnormalities in their heart or not. We usually try to decide if we've decided the patient has a clinical syndrome of heart failure, if they have heart failure preserved ejection fraction or HEFPATH, or if they have heart failure reduced ejection fraction, which we call HEFREF. In heart failure reduced ejection fraction, the echocardiogram will show signs of an ejection fraction usually less than 50%. In those cases, a lot of times the chamber size could be large or the patient could have a valvular regurgitation that could be accounting or exacerbating the heart failure symptoms. The next best test for those patients is oftentimes either a stress test or a cardiac catheterization to exclude coronary artery disease, which is the most frequent cause of a reduced ejection fraction in patients with diabetes. However, you can still have the clinical syndrome of heart failure and have a normal ejection fraction. These patients, again, are called the heart failure preserved ejection fraction patients. In these patients, the ejection fraction will be listed as normal or greater than 55%, but clues that this could be part of the problem in patients with the clinical syndrome of heart failure are that they may have diastolic dysfunction, which can be graded in levels of one to four and usually is reflected on your echo report. They also may have atrial enlargement, in particular left atrial enlargement, and they may also show signs of left ventricular hypertrophy. This combination of atrial enlargement, diastolic dysfunction, ventricular hypertrophy, and potentially elevated right heart pressures or pulmonary hypertension can result in a clinical syndrome of heart failure preserved ejection fraction. In these patients, you want to take a close look at any exacerbating factors such as hypertension and make sure that you're targeting therapies to reduce concomitant risk factors. All right, so for folks who have preserved EF, you want to target blood pressure lowering, anything else like ACE inhibitor? I know that helps with systolic heart failure. How about with diastolic heart failure? Yeah, it is a great question. We do have excellent data for ACE inhibitors used in patients for hypertension, but in terms of reducing heart outcomes or mortality data, we don't have that data yet for ACE inhibitors and heart failure preserved ejection fraction. There are some clinical trials that are ongoing that I think will help address this question. There was an exciting recent clinical trial called Paradigm HF where they looked at Entresto in patients with systolic dysfunction and it did show an improvement in outcomes on top of optimal medical therapy. There is an ongoing clinical trial with the same group of investigators looking at this drug, Entresto, which is a combination of an angiotensin and a neprilysin inhibitor in patients with heart failure preserved ejection fraction. And we are excited to learn those results and, and hope that there may also be a benefit in terms of mortality in this subgroup of patients as well. So to summarize, in patients who have clinical symptoms of heart failure, extended jugular veins, brows on exam, edema, check a BNP, and if that's high, get an echo. But if it's completely normal, it would be unusual to be completely normal if they truly had those physical exam findings. That's exactly right, and I think that's the pathway I would follow. Okay, great. Well, thanks for talking to me today. It's been a pleasure.